Tonight, can the Fed engineer a soft landing? Markets think it's possible. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Andy Schaefer, who's in for Amy Wagner tonight. It's obvious that the Federal Reserve is going to get aggressive in its uh, fight against inflation. And since it's Monday, uh, Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial, is with us. A- Andy, this is, it, it seems like a, a couple months ago, they were talking about a few rate increases. And then last week, uh, uh, Chairman Powell got uh, uh, pretty obvious that he's going to be a lot more aggressive than we've been thinking. What's What's going on here? Well, lots changed in the past few months. One of the main things is Russia's unprovoked war on Ukraine, which has had a significant impact on inflation. And we know the Fed or the Federal Reserve, which is our nation's central bank responsible for full employment and stable inflation. We know that they're worried about inflation and they're trying to control inflation because we're pretty much at full employment. Uh, But inflation is anything but stable. And then Russia's uh, war on Ukraine caused commodity prices to rise, made inflation, which was already a little problematic, made it even more problematic. Because we would be at the time right now when inflation should have been rolling over. uh, But because of that war, it's not rolling over. And now the Fed is taking a tougher stance. So a lot has changed in the past couple of months. Well, and and not just changed a little bit. I mean, we went from three rate hikes and now we're talking about 11 quarter point increases or uh, to put it a little more succinctly, we're going to start dealing with some half point increases. And I, I think that's what markets were. They seem to be surprised on Friday when when Powell came out with these uh, with a statement that he's likely to increase rates by a half a percent. That's not news to me or you or anybody else. Why do you think the markets reacted the way they did? Well, I don't know if it was necessarily related to that because, you know, there's been a lot of volatility, not just last Friday, but the past three weeks. I think it was more honestly just a continuation of the turbulence that we've been seeing. And I don't know when it'll come to end because we're not market timers. No one knows for sure. Uh, But when we look at what the market is pricing in now in terms of what the Fed is doing, it is a much more aggressive Fed than what it was at the beginning of the year. And the problem is that when the Fed is aggressive and raising rates, that's when they're slowing down the economy. Now, you do have to slow down the economy to get inflation under control. That's just how you have to do it. The problem is they might push us into recession. And there are some fears out there. The market's not pricing in a recession right now. And that's what we're talking about with that soft landing. But there are some concerns out there uh, that suggest or that, you know, where people are worried that we could fall into a recession eventually. And those are justified because recessions happen. Those are normal. That's always the case. There's always going to be a recession at some point. I I mean, a big, big deal is, okay, but is it imminent or not? And and we're hearing a whole lot of you know, some pretty well-known economists and analysts are saying a recession's coming, a recession's coming. The Fed has a track record of, of raising us into a recession. Yet you've been pretty clear that that you don't feel there's any recession imminent, in your opinion. And, and then this morning I see Bloomberg is, is uh, saying close to a 0% chance of a recession within 12 months. Why, why do you think there's such a, a big disparity in opinions on when the next recession is going to come? There's two primary reasons. One is the labor market is very strong because typically with a recession, you're going to see businesses cut people and you're going to see people's income fall, which would result in lower spending. Right now, with the labor market being so strong, with 11 million job openings, businesses aren't cutting people. 
they're not going to even if demand slows down, spending slows down, they're still not going to be uh, laying people off. There's just too many job openings out there uh, in this economy. So there's just a very, very strong, robust labor market. So that's one reason. Another reason that uh, people look from an economic perspective to in terms of low recession risk is we can look at like consumer balance sheets. The consumer is it's a healthy consumer right now when you look at their finances right savings rates pretty uh pretty good uh what people have built up from a lot of the government handouts over the past uh, couple of years a lot of that's been saved uh, if you look at debt to income ratios for households those are really low as well and so you want low debt relative to income so people are able to pay off their debts. Now, even if rates rise a little bit, most of those mortgages people have are fixed, right? So they're not going, I mean, really only affect your new home buyers. And if some people have a variable uh, mortgage rate, then, you know, yeah, they're going to be affected there. But there's, there's not much a risk there because a lot of the uh, debt rates that people pay they're fixed, whether it be a car loan, an auto loan, those are your two biggest. Now, credit cards are variable, but that's a smaller amount uh, for relative to most people's uh, total payout that they have. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec, and since it's Monday, we're talking to Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Andy, we've got a, a big week coming up with, with earnings. A lot of the large cap, large uh, corporations in, in the United States are are uh, reporting this week, and and uh, looks like we're not just looking at good earnings numbers, but maybe some really exceptional revenue numbers. What what are you saying? Yeah, so when we look at the big picture, we're we're about a quarter of the way through earnings season when we look at large cap companies, and the growth rates are coming in better than what was expected. Right now, we're seeing about a 6.9% growth rate in earnings, better than what was the, That's the pretty five strong. point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's it's lower than what we've seen over the past few quarters. But to be fair, uh, it's stronger than what was expected. I mean, heading in at earnings season, it was 5.2%. Yeah. So this is compared to the first quarter of last year. Uh, so you know, things are still moving in the right direction. On the sales side, we're seeing the same thing. Sales are growing at 11%. What was expected was 10.5%. So again, things are moving in the right direction. Well, and, and this is what gets me a little bit, because gross domestic product, the sum of all goods and services produced in this country for the first quarter of 2022, looks like they're going to come in around 1%, which is a little bit on the weak side. But I'm seeing estimates for the second quarter uh, upwards of 3%. That's that's not the direction heading into a recession that I would expect to see. Um, that sounds pretty strong. I, do you expect Do you expect GDP numbers to be this strong? Yeah, I think we they will. And obviously, the, goes back to the labor market being strong. Yeah. So consumers are able to spend and they they have a low debt relative to income. So that's good. And also, when you look at why the first quarter was a week, a big part of that was the rising cases of Omicron. And that had an impact on consumers. That's pretty much faded now. Okay. If you think predicting the stock markets are, try predicting what happens with COVID, right? <laughs> no, thanks. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with that. I mean, China is certainly taking a much different route than the rest of the world. But what has been going on here in the U.S. is it does appear that we're learning to live with it, you know, from a consumer perspective. And I understand there's, you know, concerns out there and everything uh, associated with that. But with that being said, if you just look at society, you look at the economy collectively and how we're working with COVID in general, we've seems to be we've seen to be getting to the point where we can stay open. Uh, we're living with it. Consumers are staying strong, going out and spending. We're seeing people get back out to where they're around other people. So it's certainly a, a good environment from that perspective. Well, we, we've been talking about inflation, and, and I, I think when you see revenues grow at, at a strong clip but earnings not grow quite as quickly, that might be inflation eating into earnings a little bit. Are, are you seeing any breaks in, in, in the dam of, of inflation? Do you, do you expect inflation to continue to increase, or is what the Fed doing? Is that enough? Are, are we starting to turn the corner? Well, there's a very strong chance year inflation number peaked last month. Uh, so that eight and a half percent CPI number might be the high point for this cycle. I mean, anything can happen. Well, that's good news if that's the case. That's really well, good news. Yeah, and, and both it, it's good news, and it's happening for a couple of reasons. One, the uh, commodity prices, when we look at the month-over-month -month change, they were really high in March, and they're going to be lower. The average commodity price, or oil specifically is going to be lower in April compared to March. So that's going to bring it down from that perspective. Okay. Uh, also, we now have mortgage rates at five plus percent. That will start to have an impact yeah. on prices, housing prices and housing prices and rent in general or overall shelter cost. They make up about 35% of total inflation. So higher rates will have an impact there now the, the the housing market's pretty tight right i mean we know the house goes on the market it's sold almost the next day it seems like yeah. so the good news is you'll probably see most likely some sort of pressure on prices from an inflation perspective that's good uh, but if you're a homeowner you don't want to see your housing price go down or the value of your house but if you're not selling it doesn't matter but also keep in mind this is not anything like 2008 the problem on housing with 2008 was an oversupply we're not even close to an oversupply it's just a, it's a night day differential there wow. so inflation the more the, the bottom line that mortgage rates above five percent will help to slow down the price growth and we also have lower oil prices relative to March. So that should start to roll over. And when we look at those year-over-year -year numbers, it's a collection of the past 12 months. So then you also have to look what is rolling off from 12 months ago. So we'll probably replace it with a negative, possibly a negative month-over-month -month change. And we're going to be dropping off a pretty large inflation increase from last April. So that collectively should bring that 8.5% CPI down possibly to something with a seven handle. Well, then my, my follow-up on that would be, does the Fed need to make all of these future aggressive rate increases if we've already seen peak inflation? Do you think they're doing the yeah, right thing? I mean, the, yeah, I do. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the peak inflation is one thing. Stable inflation is another thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not close to what the Fed's target is of 2% inflation. Uh, and it's going to take some time to get there. You know, I would still think this time next year, 
you know, I, you, you could be seeing inflation somewhere around maybe, th I'm going to give you a big range here, 3 to 5%. Yeah, and I, uh, I think we can live with that a lot easier. I think we yeah. probably can. I think yeah. when we, and that's a year over year number. When yeah. we get to the end of this year, we're probably still something with a, a 7% in that range. So it's it's going to be so slow to high. go down. We're going to need the, we're going to need these big numbers to roll off. Because remember, we're looking at the, the change in inflation. So once we get to this level, I mean, we, we've lifted the base level of all prices, but we need that to slow down. Uh, so it's probably, we don't want it to, necessarily go down because deflation is i mean the last time we had deflation was 2008 we don't want we deflation. don't want that that's, that's bad that's really bad <laughs> uh that's a lot harder to solve yeah. uh, for than inflation so yeah i will get there do the does the fed to answer your question uh need to do these half point hikes i mean right now with the market's pricing in the next four fed meetings is half point hikes at each one of those Will that happen? I think, yeah, I think we'll get one here on May 4th. Uh, I mean, that's just right around the corner. But a lot is going to change, Steve, when we're thinking about the economy. We'll just think about what's changed the beginning of the year till now. A lot's going to change in the next few months. Sure. We'll have to see how the Fed handles that and what the evolution of the the, the environment looks like from an econ economic standpoint. Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Thank you, Andy. Here's a Simply Money point. Volatility is probably going to stay. If recent headlines and news to come has you feeling jittery, it might be worth analyzing your risk tolerance. Coming up, there's a stunning new report about retirement that might motivate you to get educated. We'll explain next. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Andy Schaefer. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to our weekly podcast, The Best of Simply Money, on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Straight ahead at 643, you're going to want to listen to this, Social Security mistakes that could cost you thousands. First it was Amazon, then Starbucks. Andy, now Apple workers are looking to unionize. Yeah, it seems like this is a trend um, that's beginning to pick up some steam. There's some organizers from Apple that said they're they're seeking higher pay. They're they're seeking um, increased tuition reimbursement, larger four hundred and one k matches. They have a number of goals, and they're seeing they're seeing the success that um, you know Amazon had and Star Starbucks have had unionizing, and they want to take advantage of it. So yeah, you know you might want you know we might see more of this with a lot of large companies. See what I, I don't I I get they want to get a big bigger piece of the pie. I mean Apple stock has gone from fifty to one hundred and fifty over the past couple of years, but they're already you know fine. They got healthcare and they got all that kind of stuff, but they've got a twenty dollar minimum tuition reimbursement. They're they're getting college paid for parental leave, stock grants. All I, I don't know what else they would. They, they well, won. I think in the environment that we're in right now, Steve, you know, employees have a lot of the leverage um, because of, you know, the, the tight labor market. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you need to be careful what you wish for. There are some downsides to unionizing. And, and you know, for instance, you know, if, if you're a part of a union, a lot of times your promotions are based on seniority, not performance, um, you know, or, or not, you know, just merit in general. So you can be passed over just because somebody has a little bit more tenure than you. And consequently, you can be let go if you've been there less amount of time than somebody else, even if you do a good job. So, you know, sometimes you need to be careful yeah. what you wish for, but we are seeing a, a little bit of a trend here. Well, yeah, and I, I think the labor market may work against them because, I mean, there are two jobs for every person that's unemployed right now. Right. Yeah, you know, this is a tight labor market, and Apple's only got 17% of its sales are in-store sales. I mean, it's basically an online company. So we'll keep you posted. We'll see how this shakes out. 
there's a sobering new survey about retirement. It might motivate you to get going on your retirement planning and to get educated about it all. There's a new Go Banking rate survey that shows one third of all Americans, one third, don't think they know enough about retirement. Let's dive into it. Andy, what are you seeing on this survey? Well, about 37% of Americans feel they need more education and information specifically on retirement planning. Um, but, you know, an, an overwhelming uh, percentage of 52% of, percent of Americans wish they had more education on how to invest yeah. for 2022. And I think a lot of that has to do with a lot of the uncertain times that we're in, the volatility, you know, inflation, um, you know, the, the labor market. And it makes a lot of people nervous because we kind of are in a little bit of uncharted waters at this point. Well, and, and you know, it gets me that in our education system, this isn't a priority in a lot of schools. I, I mean, 95% of the, of the people surveyed said, they don't believe their high schools are doing a, a good job. Did, did you get any of this? No. And, I, and, I, I know I didn't. And, you know, we actually partner with the University of Cincinnati yeah. and do some things down there with, um, you know, teaching youngsters about financing and budgeting and things like that. But when I was in high school, we didn't have – I mean, we, there were some accounting classes and some yeah. things like that. But even when I was in college, you know, I was an economics and business major. There wasn't a stock market class. Get you out. Know, <laughs> you know, there was well, – I, I went to liberal arts school. So – you know, there there wasn't that kind of specialization. Yeah. And um, I also remember when you went to the campus center, you would have all of these credit card companies just setting up shop there trying to get you to sign up for a new beach towel, right? <laughs> and and most kids didn't understand what was going on at that point. Yeah. But, um, you know, most most Americans believe that high schools are lacking in financial education. Yeah. But what, what was interesting was is that it, it also found that 80% of Americans consider themselves financially literate. So that was the statistic. So where are they getting it from? I don't right? know. Well, and I think I think a lot of people are, you know, they, there was some further data there that a lot of them are getting it from high school. They also said a lot of people said from their parents and family, which yeah. would make sense. Some from college, some from social media, and um, but only 7% from a financial advisor. 7% from financial advisors. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it just, wouldn't it be great if there were some form of communication, some... I, I don't know, maybe a radio show that, that had information <laughs> yeah. on, on investing out there. From 6 to 7. Every night. <laughs> From 6 to 7 p.m., exactly. Uh. But, you know, th- th- this, this is an issue. And I, I, I think part of, part of the reason that so few people get their information from a, a financial advisor is, you know, okay, you go to a seminar, it, it, most of the time, well, pretty much all the time, it's a sales field disguised as education. Right. It, you know, so you, you've got you've to build a reputation uh, of actually providing just solid information that's unbiased, that, that is, you know, the fiduciary level of, of standard, that it's for the benefit of the person sitting in front of you and not the benefit of your own, uh, your own pocketbook. Yeah, you know, the, these are some of the issues that we, we definitely need to fix. And, and I, I saw it when, when my kids were going through school. I, I remember in fifth grade when my older son was in fifth grade. And, and uh, they asked me to give a, give a talk to the kids about investing. So that's kind of that's neat. You know, let's talk. Uh, here's what a stock is. Here's what a bond was. And, and I had no idea that they had already been getting basics in fifth grade. That's great. So, yeah, some schools do. A lot of schools don't. That's the unfortunate side of it. I think there's a lot of room uh, for improvement on educating our, our children, not just balancing a checkbook, but someday they're all going to have a 401k. Let's understand what the heck that's all about. Here's a Simply Money point. If the pandemic has left you more confused and worried about retirement, now is the best time to educate yourself and reexamine your financial future. Coming up, how resilient are you? Our Amy Wagner is in next with a closer look at how that one trait 
can play into your career and your money. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. It would be really great if we went through life and nothing bad ever happened, right? You don't have to bounce back from anything. But let's face it, that's not real life. And sometimes it's uh, an issue with your money, an issue with your job, an issue in your personal life, whatever it is. I think we've all had things that we've had to overcome. Joining us tonight with some great perspective on resilience, right? The art of bouncing back is our friend Carla Messer. She's the chief results officer at Best Work and assistant professor at Indiana University East. You know, it, it's interesting, Carla, because... Um, I went through a divorce several years ago. Resiliency was nothing that I had really thought much about before then. And it was like this word that kept creeping back into my mind over and over again during that time. Uh, we all kind of understand it when we're going through something like that. Yeah, you know, resilience really is our capacity of, you know, our individual capacity, a system, an enterprise, a person to maintain your core purpose, maintain your integrity when you are faced with dramatically changed circumstances. In your case, a divorce. And there are lots of things that can cause us to be in a place where we need to bounce back or feel like we're a little bit in that in that rut. But there is great news. Uh, we are actually, as human beings, we're wired for resilience. We are wired to bounce back. It's called neuroplasticity. It's a you know big word, but it really just uh, means that we have this ability to reroute ourselves and get ourselves out of these down spaces and into a better place. What I love, Carla, about when you come on the show is you give us some really practical steps, right? I mean, there's lots of like lofty things that we can talk about. Let's be more resilient, but let's get down to brass tacks here. How do we do it? What are the steps? If, if there's something that, you know I, know, I know a lot of people who just feel kind of generally overwhelmed right now. COVID's been going on for so long. Things just aren't normal. For someone who's going through anything along those lines, what are practical steps to work on this? Yeah, you know, I'm really about looking at the, the whole system. And, and in this case, when we look at what causes one system or one individual to kind of break down and another to bounce back, there are some things that we have in common. One is anticipating this disruption. And so we often like to laugh and say, I'm just going to put my head in the sand. But in reality, those people who bounce back oftentimes are looking and anticipating what's going on around me and how do I get ahead of it. Uh, in addition, they find ways to heal themselves, ways to be kind and to to heal themselves through what I'm going to talk about here briefly is, you know, some meditation type of techniques that really have been proven to completely rewire parts of the brain so that we can reduce stress. Um, and so this ability to reorganize, to, to heal and to anticipate disruption really are little shock absorbers for us individually so that we can bounce back. And there are some very specific ways that, that we can do that, obviously, um, which oftentimes res revolves around um, high-functioning social networks. Not surprisingly, when we have people around us and high-functioning networks, um, we have a better ability to bounce back. So surrounding yourself with people who are positive, that can kind of help pull you out is a great thing. What else? 
Well, you know, they also found uh, in this book on resilience by Andrew Zoli that there were some things like ego resiliency, this capacity to overcome, steer through, or bounce back from adversity. And how we find that out is just by going through life. You know, Amy, all of us have had something in our life that at the time felt like the worst thing that has ever happened to us. And actually making it through those moments and being able to kind of look in the rearview mirror and develop some hardiness as a result, really this belief that uh, we can grow from even positive or negative experiences, both, right, that we can, in fact, influence our surroundings and our outcome. And we see in our history that we have lived through those trials and tribulations, no matter what they are, whether it's job loss, uh, you know, a a tough performance discussion, um, you know, tough financial situations, realizing that we've made it through that in the past is, part and parcel to really what helps us be successful moving forward and remembering those things, whether it's taking the time to, you know, jot down and and reflect on the things that we've overcome in the past as a reminder of just how resilient we are. People who are able to do that definitely have a a better outcome. And then the last one is something we call ego control, which is this ability to delay gratification so that we can, in fact, um, be able to achieve future goals. And people who are resilient are able to see that this is a small setback and it doesn't stop me from my longer term goal that's ahead of me. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We are joined by our friend Carla Master. She's the chief results officer of Best Work and assistant professor at Indiana University East with how to be more resilient or how to understand maybe how you can bounce back from something a little better. Um, Carla, one of the things that you just talked about was influencing your surroundings. I think it's easy when you're going through something to feel like you're out of control. So, So how do you kind of bring it around to the fact that, no, actually, I might have some control here? Yeah, you know, this idea of understanding where the root of some of your distress is coming from requires us to be uh, self-aware. And unfortunately, so many of us are caught up in the daily activities that we don't stop and pause long enough to just uh, take a minute. And, you know, researchers have found that um, just 27 minutes, it it isn't much time at all. I mean, you know, we think about um, what we waste a half an hour of our time with in in any given day, but social media, sitting in traffic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Any, any number of things, right? 27 minutes a day of meditation over eight weeks resulted in measurable changes in brain scans, you know, improved self-awareness, compassion, introspection, learning, and memory. And it also affected that gray matter that plays a role in stress and anxiety. But, you know, it's really not about meditation as much as it is creating a way of life where you take the time to pause and reflect on some of the things that we talked about. But one of the unique ways that they spoke about was reflecting on people that we love and closing your eyes for even just a 30 second um, period of time and really concentrating in your mind on someone that you feel deep love for. Maybe it's your child, maybe it's your spouse, um, maybe it's your pet, um, but something or someone that you have deep, deep love for, for just 30 seconds intermittently throughout the day, they showed had enormous ability to start rerouting our mind in towards those positive, resilient, bounce back types of feelings. It's a powerful free <laughs> yeah. technique that we can use to begin to rebuild our mind in a way 
that um, roots our beliefs and values um, in this idea that we can cultivate change, right? When we believe it and think about cultivating those changes, we can rewire our minds to do that. And we've even seen research that shows addiction can be overcome and other things can be attacked with this process of rerouting neuroplasticity, our mind into thinking about things differently. Well, there seems to be a power in that, Carla. I think we all know people who um, just get overwhelmed, right? When things don't go well, they just seem to crumble under the pressure. And, and there's also people who we know who it seems like bad things happen to them and they do bounce back and they're really kind of positive about them and they're, they're able to put it into perspective. And I've kind of always thought maybe people are just kind of wired differently. But you're saying, actually, this might be something that we have a little more control over. Oh, and we have a lot of control over it, right? And so I mentioned earlier high-functioning social networks. And so a lot of times people of faith report greater degrees of resilience. The link between religion and resilience demonstrates this kind of idea of social networks. But in addition to that, even high-risk groups like uh, Hispanics have been found that despite these risk factors, their social networks close the gap. Hawaiians, for example, also in this study showed to be successful despite being in this 50 to 80% high risk level because of their social networks. And so collectivist cultures oftentimes show more resilience in the face of hardship simply because they have high functioning social networks, people to lean into, a parachute of people, if you will, to catch them when they fall and to reinforce the things that we talked about, you know, relative to remember you've overcome things like this. Remember that was a hard time, but you did it and look at where you are now. Great insights into how we can all be a little more resilient in 2022. This has been Carla Messer joining us. She's Chief Results Officer of Best Work, Assistant Professor at Indiana University East. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Andy Schaefer. Straight ahead, where and how to get the most money for your kids' college education. You know, Andy, as advisors, we've got questions from clients about Social Security. There's a lot of confusion about that. What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen? Well, I think... You know, with Social Security, the, one of the biggest mistakes is not not keeping track of it, especially as yeah. you're getting closer to retirement age. You know, the amount of Social Security benefits you receive depends on your earnings record. And if your earnings record isn't correct, you want to make sure that you get out in front of it because if it's, you know, if it's been lagging a number, number of years where you've seen some mistakes, it yeah. might be harder to unwind. So that's that's a big one for me. So your, your benefit is based on your top 35 years of earnings. So if you got married or divorced or your employer just put it in under the wrong social number, if that's not in there correctly, you may get shortchanged. How do you find out if that's the case? Well, one of the things you can do is go to um, ssa.gov, which is your social security benefits. Everybody should do that. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, it used to be where you would get one statement annually in the mail that said, okay, here's kind of where your full retirement age social security number is. But now you can go online and check at any time. And the website is actually pretty efficient and pretty good. Yeah. Um, I've been on there a number of times. So you want to make sure that you do that. And, and like you said, to your point, 35 years of your top earning um, years of your life, you know, think about that. You know, your top earning year 
versus the one where you first started in the industry, that can have a significant effect on your overall Social Security benefit. Oh, so you want to yeah. make sure that you know those small ones drop off and those big, big ones continue on and continue to check your pay stubs, keep a record of your W-2s and those type of things. Well, you, you know, you just figure if you're 55 years old, you're making more than you did when you were 20. Right. And that's 35 years. So that year when you're age 55 is taking that age 20 income year off the table and 56 is taking 21 and so on and so on. And that's going to make a dramatic uh, change over over time on your, your benefit amount. Uh, what, what other mistakes are you Well, saying? you want to make sure that you understand how many credits you need to be, um, you know, to actually be eligible. You need yeah. 40 work credits and you can earn up to four credits each year. So you basically need to work about 10 years in order to be eligible. So you want to keep an eye on that number. But um, I think as far as you know, the actual age where you're eligible to take it. You can take Social Security as early as 62 and wait as long as 70. Yeah. And it's different for everybody, whether it makes sense for you to take it early or whether it makes sense for you to take it late. So, for instance, if you take it at 62, generally speaking, you're looking at about a 30% pay cut on that Social Security benefit over the span of your life. Now, if you don't have very good health history in your family, maybe it does make sense for you to take it at 62 yeah. because every year that you don't take it is going to be a year that you're not getting that benefit. So you have to have a break-even age to reach to be able to make sure that you do receive it. So I think the age that you take it is going to be a, a very important job for you to figure out as well. I, I think the biggest mistake I see, and, and this is something that usually you just don't put thought into it, but full retirement age is a really important age. For me, it's age 67. For 60, you, it's 67, right. I think, also. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And full retirement age, that's not when you get your full benefit as much as it is. That's the age at which you can make as much money you want uh, at whatever job you like and still not have a reduction on your Social Security benefit. So here, here's the way I usually see it play out. Somebody retires at 63. They have no intention of going back to work. They, they decide, you know what, I'm going to get some of my money back out of Social Security. I'm going to draw my reduced benefit. I'm okay with that. I've, I made the, the decision. And then a year later, for whatever reason, they go back to work. And, and the amount that you're allowed to earn if you're already drawing Social Security before you're at full retirement age, which, again, for us is 67, is not a lot of money. It's uh, 19560 bucks. So if you go back to work, you're drawing Social Security every to every dollar, every two dollars you make over nineteen thousand dollars is a one dollar reduction in your social security benefit. So you know what I get out of that is okay. Don't draw your social security benefit if you're not full retirement age yet, unless you're absolutely sure that you're not going back to work. Yeah, and you also want to make sure that you plan for the taxes on those benefits too. You know, 85% of your Social Security benefits could be subject to federal income taxes if you earn a, a, an income outside of, you know, the wages and dividends. So this all comes into play yeah. as far as the things that you need to consider. Yeah, or, or, or you just draw on your uh, retirement account. Right, that's, that's, that's income. income. That's income, and it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot of money to put you in into that league. I mean, you're, you're talking basically your adjusted gross income plus half of your Social Security benefit. If you're married filing jointly, if that's more than $44,000 and that's not a lot of money, yes, you're going to be taxed on 85% of your Social Security. So definitely work that into the equation before you draw. How about waiting until you're 70? Well, wait until you're 70 can be beneficial in the long run if you're going to end up having a long life you know, of 95. You know, how long you live. Right. And yeah. the other, but the other thing is, is that 
you know, maybe that doesn't make sense to some regard because when you're younger, maybe that income becomes more important. How much are you going to need that income when you're 85, 86, yeah. 87 years old? So um, now it can come into play. Let's say if you have a younger spouse, for instance, and yeah. and you are significantly older, maybe you delay in order to because if once you pass away, your spouse gets the higher of the two Social Security exactly. benefits. So maybe there's a way where you're creating a basically a new pension fund by delaying until 70 so that your spouse can receive that inflated amount of Social Security for you, too. Something else to consider. Here's the Simply Money point. There, there are so many components of Social Security. Education is absolutely the key to maximizing your benefits. Coming up next, where to go to get more money to pay for that college education? You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Andy Schaefer. College is crazy expensive. It can be a huge financial burden on parents. Trust me, I've been through it. Let's look at where you can turn to get some help. Andy, you went to one of those elite Ivy League schools. <laughs> I, I, I know that. I, well, where did you go to school? I went to Hanover College in yeah. Southern Indiana. It's a private liberal arts school. I really enjoyed it. It's a very pretty campus. Uh, when I went there in the mid-90s, it was about $11,000 a year. Um, oh, wow. And I got most of that paid for, fortunately. Um yeah. Now it's you know close to sixty thousand a year. So wow, it's a significant jump, and we're seeing that not just with private schools, but also public schools. You know, public four-year yeah. state colleges are now at about eleven thousand dollars per year. Um, you know, public four-year out-of-state institutions now are, are nearing almost thirty grand a year for for four-year costs. Um, and private institutions are nearing forty thousand dollars a year, so it's 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 hitting everybody. And those are average prices. Right, you said Hanover is sixty now. Close. Yeah, yep. yeah. And and in talking to clients, I, I and and friends, it's fifty to sixty is kind of the norm for mm-hmm. a private school. So yeah, you know, getting money, getting help, getting scholarship, that's more important than ever. What what do you do? Well, I think you know, for for me, when I was going through the process, I had some scholarship money, some other things, but. You can always look to different websites that you can find ways of applying for different merit-based scholarships. You know, when I was when I was going through the process, there was this – you went to the library and there was this big giant book yeah. that you would go through. And they say, oh, well, the Kiwanis Club offers $1,000 for this. Well, there might only have been three people that applied for it, so you had a pretty good chance. Right. And so now there's websites where you can search on those a little bit more. The other thing that I would like to say, though, is maybe public institutions are cheaper on the surface – but my experience is I've found that a lot of times the private institutions don't rule those out because they have large endowments where they can give yep. you a substantial amount of help and a lot of times more than public schools. I, my younger son was really set on going to Tulane. And, and, oh, down New Orleans. Yeah, and, and he applied to UC Olson. I'm like, all right, there's going to be a year of overlap. I, I don't know if he gets accepted. If I, I, I don't know if I can pull this off. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he got accepted to Tulane, and he really wanted to go there. And then I looked at the aid package that came in about about two weeks later. And the difference between UC and Tulane in, in tuition was massive. After grants, after scholarships, it was less than $1,000 difference right. per semester. You know, so don't give up on private institutions uh, just because they're they're a lot more expensive. Yeah, the other thing you want to keep in mind is, is financial aid. You know, so for instance, if you're applying for tu- tuition in the fall of 2022, um, that's reporting on your income from 2020. So you want to make sure the financial aid institutions um, have a good understanding of where you are financially because things do change. You know, what if you've lost, lost your job? Or what if you had a pay, pay to reduction? All of those things go yeah. into play, and they're still lagged by about two years on your financial record. So you want to be proactive to make sure those fi- 
there's financial um, aid offices know exactly where your financial situation is. Yeah, and don't give up on community college. It might not be your kid's first choice, but I, Cincinnati State is awesome. Well, you remember what Ed used to say? He said that he would go for two years there and then recommend people to transfer into the main branches. And that was a way to save money. I, I think that's a great way of going. You've been listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station.